in Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, beginning with verse number 1, the Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Why did Israel, why did Israel say this? Why did they say this proverb? Why did they say the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? What did they mean by these perplexing words? I want to suggest that for us to really be able to appreciate why the people of Israel said these words, it's important for us to first understand the context for what's going on here. You see, here in the context of Ezekiel chapter 18, we need to understand that the people of God under the Old Covenant, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, they are in captivity. They are in Babylonian captivity. By this time, the second invasion of Babylon into Judah has occurred. You see, by 597 B.C., the heathen king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, had taken into captivity a large portion of Jews. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel would be among this group of people. Ezekiel would actually be God's spokesman to the people of Judah during this time. God wanted Ezekiel to go to the people of Judah and preach the word of God to them and explain to them exactly why they were in captivity. God wanted Ezekiel to tell them why they were suffering at that time. In fact, we find a great example of Ezekiel doing that, fulfilling that mission right here in Ezekiel chapter 18. You see, here in Ezekiel chapter 18, we find the prophet of God addressing a proverb that had been circulating among the people. This proverb actually had to do with the reason why they felt they were suffering in captivity. According to the proverb, the people felt that they were suffering in captivity because they were being punished by God. Specifically, they felt that they were being punished by God for the sins of others. They felt that their fathers or their forefathers had been wicked. Their forefathers had eaten the sour grapes and God was punishing them for their sins. They were the children whose teeth had been set on edge. You see, with this proverb, what the people are doing is they are accusing God of being unjust. They are accusing God of being cruel and unfair. The question is, were they right? Was this proverb correct? Were these people really being punished by God because of the sins and evil actions of their, of their forefathers? As we seek to deal with that this morning and how God responds to Israel's proverb, I want to ask you to go there in your Bible with me right now. When you go in your Bible to Ezekiel, just plant yourself right there. We're not going anywhere else. Go to Ezekiel chapter 18. 
I want to start reading with verse number three. I think it is important that we read what the Bible says here. We're going to read a lot of scripture right now. I think that's good to do from time to time, especially in a public setting. Sometimes we need to just read and let the Holy Spirit tell us what the Lord wants us to know. The Holy Spirit can say it way better than I can on any day of the week. And so what does the Holy Spirit tell us, beginning with verse number three of Ezekiel 18? Well, after hearing this proverb recited by the people of Judah, the Bible says in verse number three, as I live, declares the Lord, you're surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period. If a man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. If he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he executes his hand from if he keeps, I'm sorry, his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man. If he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he that man is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord. That he may have a violent son who sheds blood. And who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things, that is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but lifts up his eyes to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all of his father's sins which he committed and observing he does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or oppress anyone or retain a pledge or commit robbery but he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from the poor and does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances and walks in my statues. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among the people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Now let's just stop right there for just a moment. As we really try to break down as we really try to break down what God is saying to the prophet there in those verses, I want you to go back to verse number three, and I want you to notice carefully what the Bible says in verse number three. Notice how in verse number three, God tells the people of Judah emphatically that their proverb, their proverb that they had been reciting over and over again was wrong. It was false. It was not correct. That is exactly what is implied by the language of you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Notice how God did not want this proverb circulating among his people anymore. He did not want 
this proverb spoken. He did not want his people hearing this proverb. He did not want this, his people believing this proverb. Instead, what he wanted his people to understand is when it comes to him and his judgment, he evaluates every person based on their own actions. He evaluates every person based on their own decisions. This is a truth that we really need to emphasize this morning because let me tell you something, for a lot of religious folks, they do not believe this. For a lot of religious folks, they do not believe that God judges every person based on their individual actions. Instead, what a lot of religious folks believe is they believe in the doctrine of original sin. Have you ever heard of the doctrine of original sin? Do you know anyone who believes in the doctrine of original sin? The doctrine of original sin is actually part of the doctrine of Calvinism. Someone says, what is Calvinism? Well, the doctrine of Calvinism was invented or concocted by a man named John Calvin in the early 1500s. John Calvin was actually contemporary with Martin Luther. Both John Calvin and Martin Luther were key players in the Protestant Reformation. Both of these men were key players in protesting many of the false practices of the Catholic Church. You see, in his protesting of the indulgences that were being practiced in the Catholic Church, John Calvin concluded, falsely, mind you, that there is nothing a person has to do to be saved. He concluded that salvation is by grace alone and God chooses who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. Man's choices has nothing to do with that. You see, according to Calvin, men are born with a wicked nature which causes them to sin. Men are born totally depraved. Because of the first man, Adam, who sinned in the Garden of Eden. That is what John Calvin advocated in the early 1500s. And that is also exactly what a lot of people advocate today. That is also exactly what a lot of religious folks believe today. In fact, not only do religious folks believe this today, but brothers and sisters, notice how the people of Judah believe this in the time of Ezekiel. Notice how in the time of Ezekiel, the people of Judah also believed in inherited sin. They also believed that they are being punished by God because of the sins of their forefathers. That is exactly what their proverb was all about. This proverb promoted the idea of original sin. And so how does God, how does God respond to that? Let's go back to the text again. Let's go back to verse number four. Notice how at the beginning of verse number four, God begins responding to this proverb by saying, all souls are mine. All souls are mine. Brothers and sisters, when God says all there in that statement, he means just that. He means all. All souls belong to him. Every person's soul belongs to God. Every person's soul was created by God. He is the one who has full control and authority over our lives. At the beginning of verse number four, God says that all of the souls 
All of the souls belong to him. And then in the last part of verse number four, he says that the soul who sins will die. The soul who sins will die. What does that mean? Well, that means that every person, every person is accountable for their own actions. Every person is accountable for their own sins. God's not going to judge anyone as guilty of sin based on the evil actions of someone else. In the case of Israel's dilemma in captivity, God wanted them to know that, they're not, that they were not suffering because of the sins of their forefathers. They were not suffering because of the sins of their parents or their grandparents. Instead, they were suffering because of their own sins. They were suffering for their own evil. They were suffering because of their own failure to truly love the God and put him first. God wanted these people to really understand that. He wanted them to understand that they were being punished because of their own evil and their own idolatry. In fact, to drive this point home in a very powerful way, notice how God... In the rest of the text we read, he provides them with a powerful illustration. He actually provides them with an illustration that consists of three generations and one family. And notice how with each person in this family, God judges them based on their own decisions. And so let's talk about the people in the illustration. Let's start with the first man. The first man, if you remember, is mentioned in verses 5 through 9. The first man that is mentioned in the illustration is a good man. He is a man like many of the men in the room this morning. He's a man who loves God. He's a man who walks in the ways of God. He's a man who doesn't get involved in idolatry or sexual immorality or dishonesty or anything else outside of the will of God. This first man that is described in the illustration is a man who obeyed God's laws. He tried his best to live a righteous life. And as a result of that, he is judged by God as righteous. God says this man is a righteous man, but this righteous man also had a son, right? And this righteous man's son is very different than him. Unlike the righteous man who did his best to live a good life and obey God's law, this son, the son of the righteous man, is a wicked man. He is a man who is the complete opposite of his father. He's a violent man. He's a man who oppresses the poor. He's a thief. He's sexually immoral. He's heavily involved in idolatry. He's a very wicked man. And because of his wickedness, he's condemned by God. God says this man is not going to live. He's not going to be blessed. And so you got a father who's a good man, a man who lives according to the standard of God. He has a son. The son is very wicked. And because of his wickedness, he's condemned by God. But this wicked man, he also has a son. And this third person is actually the grandson of the first man. He's the grandson of the first man. He's the son of the second man. And he is just as different from his father as his father was from his. You see, while his father was a very wicked man who did things that were totally out of step with the law of God, this third man, he lived a good life. 
He didn't follow in the footsteps of his wicked father and said he chose to do right. He chose to serve God. He chose to be a good man, to obey the law of God. He was a righteous man. And as a result of him being a righteous man, he is judged by God as righteous. That's the illustration that the prophet uses to make the point. In this illustration, you got a man who's a good man. He lives by the word of God. He's judged by God as righteous. He has a wicked son. His son doesn't keep God's law. He's very unrighteous. He's condemned by God. And then he also has a son, and his son is nothing like him. His son is a faithful servant of God. He obeys God's laws, and as a result, he's judged by God as righteous. That is the illustration used by the prophet. The question is, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this illustration that is used by the prophet? Well, one of the lessons we learn here is something we've already talked about, but I think we got to keep emphasizing. One of the lessons we learn here is, again, God judges all of us on an individual basis. He judges all of us on an individual basis. In the case of the first man, because he was righteous, he was judged by God as righteous. Because he was righteous, he was blessed. God says he was going to live. He was going to live spiritually. God judged this man based on his righteousness. But in the case of his son, who was very wicked, God says he was going to be put to death. God said that his father's righteousness was not going to save him. His blood was going to be on his own head. He was not going to be judged as righteous just because he had a righteous father. Both of those men were judged by God on an individual basis. The same is also true with the third man, the grandson of the first man and the son of the wicked man. Go back to the text again. Look at verse 17. Let's look at this again. Ezekiel 18, 17. In regards to the third man, the righteous man, who did not walk in the wicked footsteps of his father, it says in Ezekiel 18 and verse 17, this man, he keeps his hand from the poor. He does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances and walks in my statues. He will not die for his what? For his father's iniquity. I'm not going to condemn him because he had a wicked father. He will surely live. Verse 18, as for his father, his wicked father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among the people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. You see that? Now look at verse 19. Yet you say, you people of Judah, you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person whose sins will die. The person whose sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. If these two verses don't make our point right now, then I don't know what in the world they're doing. If these two verses alone don't blow away Calvinistic doctrine that I don't know what in the world does. Notice how contrary to what John Calvin taught in the 1500s, sin, sin is not passed from one generation to the next. M men do not inherit 
their parents' righteousness or unrighteousness. The Bible says that God judges every person on an individual basis. The gospel teaches personal, personal accountability before God. Every man in that family was judged by God on an individual basis. No one's, no one's parents' righteousness was going to save them automatically. Neither was another parent's wickedness going to condemn them automatically. God judged them all on an individual basis. That is the key lesson. That is the key lesson to take from that section. But there's other things that we can learn. A second lesson that we can learn from that text is when it comes to excuses, and sometimes we like to have excuses, when it comes to any excuses we have for not serving the Lord, those excuses are not going to cut it. They're not going to fly. They're not going to be accepted by God. Why did Israel say that proverb? Why, would, why did they say that proverb? Well, they said that proverb because they were trying to pass responsibility. They were trying to pass responsibility for their sins. They were trying to claim that God was being unfair and unjust with them. They thought in their minds that they were in captivity because of the sins of, of their forefathers. They were refusing to accept responsibility for their own spiritual failures. And isn't that exactly how so many people are today? Do we not also live in a culture where so many people think that very same way? Do we not also live in a culture today, brothers and sisters, where for so many people, they do not like to accept responsibility for their evil actions? They do not like to accept responsibilities for their own failures in life. Instead of accepting responsibility, you know what a lot of people like to do? They like to pass the blame. They like to blame everybody and everything under the sun. They want to blame the government. They want to blame the media. They want to blame their parents. They want to blame the church. They want to blame their educators. They want to blame the devil. Some people even want to blame God. We live in a time nothing has changed. Where so many people don't want to accept responsibility for their sins and their failures in life. And while it is true, while it is true, listen carefully. While it is true that some people certainly grow up in tough and immoral situations, I'm someone who certainly can attest to coming from a background like that, but that doesn't mean that we can't rise above our situations. That doesn't mean we can't do better. That doesn't mean we can't be like the third man in Ezekiel 18, going back to that third man. Remember, just because he had a wicked father, that didn't mean that he walked in his footsteps. And that doesn't mean we have to walk in our wicked parents' footsteps. That doesn't mean we have to be evil and unrighteous because they may have been evil and unrighteous. Remember our sermon from last Sunday about the two paths? Remember we said that one of the great things that comes with being made in the image of God is as human beings, as people created in God's image, we got the ability to choose, don't we? We have the ability to choose which way we want to go. We have the ability to choose our path. We have the ability to choose how we want to live our lives. Practically speaking, if we had bad parents, that doesn't mean we have to be bad parents. That doesn't mean we have to be wicked parents. 
If we grew up in broken homes, that doesn't mean that we got to raise our kids in broken homes. If we grew up watching our parents argue and fuss and cuss each other out and fight and constantly mismanage their money and live in all kinds of debt, that don't mean we got to do those things in our families right now. We don't have to live like that. We can all choose to rise above, rise above. We can all choose to rise above any bad situation that we may come from. In fact, God expects us to do that. God requires that we do that. God requires that we get rid of the excuses and choose to rise above any bad circumstance that we may have come from and live the best kind of lives that he has given us right now to live. Excuses. Excuses are not going to be accepted by God. But then we come to a third lesson, and a third lesson I think we take from the illustration is the fact that righteous people can raise some wicked children. And likewise, wicked people can raise righteous children. Did you catch that in the story? I think that's something we really need to emphasize, especially those of us who are currently raising children. For those of us who are currently raising children, even, or even for those who've already raised children, we need to understand that our children, they're not programmed robots. They're not machines that we can program to do whatever we want to do. They're not people who are guaranteed to be faithful to God just because we do daily Bible reading with them, just because we pray with them and bring them to services and bring them to Bible classes and try to live righteously before them. Our children are not robots. We certainly need to do those things with them. We certainly need to make the most of the time we have with them right now. That time is ticking down every single day. Every single day, our time is limited to make the most of the opportunity we have with our kids. But please understand that we could do all the right things with them to the best of our ability, and there's still going to come a time when this Christianity thing is going to fall in their lap, and they're going to have to decide what they're going to do with it. They're going to have to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. God, God is the greatest father there is. Wouldn't you agree with that? God is the greatest father there is. And notice how he doesn't force his children to give their hearts to him. And likewise, we also can't force our children to give their hearts to him. For all the young people in the room this morning, you got to understand that that's a choice you're going to have to make yourself. There's going to come a day when your mom and dad are not going to be there to force you to get up on Sunday and go to church. You're going to be all on your own one day. And you're going to have to decide whether or not you're going to serve Jesus. You're going to have to decide whether, whether or not you're going to put God first, separate and apart from your parents. I don't care how many righteous people you may have in your family. Your family's righteousness is not going to automatically make you right with God. God's still going to judge you also on an individual basis. That's the fact of the matter. That's something we learn from Ezekiel 18. From Ezekiel 18, we see very clearly that righteous people can raise some wicked children and wicked people can raise some righteous children. Why? Well, because we're all free moral ages, ultimately. But let's go back to the text one more time. One more time. Ezekiel 18. And let's pick up with verse 21. Because when talking about this wicked man in verse number 21, the Bible says this. But if the wicked man, verse, verse 21, if the wicked man turns, notice that, if he turns 
from all his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he will surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered. For his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed, for them he will die. Yet you say, you people of Judah say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he has committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. But the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? What's the Lord saying there in those verses? Well, it's very simple. What the Lord is saying there is when it comes to righteous people right now in this life and when it comes to wicked people right now in this life, both of those groups of people can change. They can change. A righteous man can choose to change and become wicked, and likewise, a wicked man can choose to change and become righteous. Contrary to the doctrine of Calvinism, there is no such thing as once saved, always saved. And there's also no such thing as once lost, always lost, at least not while people are still alive. The Bible says a righteous man. A righteous man can change and become wicked, and a wicked man can change and become righteous. And when a wicked man does change and becomes righteous... Guess what? God's judgment of that man also changes. That's exactly what happened with Saul of Tarsus. That's exactly what happened to the Corinthians. That's exactly what happened to King Manasseh. That's exactly what happened to, to us, right? Wicked people can change. And once they change, God's evaluation of them also changes. God says... That when a wicked man changes and becomes righteous, he will live. He will not be punished. His transgressions will be forgiven. And they will not be held against him anymore. Well, I just want you to see Israel's proverb was wrong. It was wrong. God is fair. God is just. God does deal with people, not based on the actions of others, but based on what they have done. We all have individual responsibility before God. God's going to judge us for our own actions. If our lives are not right with God, guess what? That's no one's fault but our own. That's our fault. But thankfully, it's because we may be out of sight of fellowship with God today. That doesn't mean we got to stay in that situation. 
If you look at the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse number 30, God says that if a man repents, if he casts away his transgressions, if he makes in himself a new heart and a new spirit, God will receive that man. God will forgive that man. God will bring that man into fellowship with him. And so if there's someone here this morning who needs to do that very thing, if there's someone here this morning who's been living a wicked life, you haven't been walking in the ways of God, if you need to repent and turn and renew in yourself a new heart and a new spirit, God is ready to receive you today. And if we can help you with that in any way at all, you come to the front right now as we stand and we sing together.